Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Financial Planning Explained. I'm the host, Mike Menninger. I'm a certified financial planner and owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, today, again, we're talking about uh, one of the six areas of financial planning, and we're talking about tax planning. And today is the second part of a two-week episode on tax planning. Uh, last week, we talked basically the foundation and fundamentals of how the tax system works. Uh, today, we're going to talk more about the strategies, but I'm going to continue a little bit with the foundation so that I can at least provide you with some of the rationale as to why. When it comes to tax planning, the whole idea of tax planning is inevitably we're going to have to pay taxes. So the whole idea is how can we make that number as small as possible. In some cases, we're going to find ourselves having to pay some of the taxes today at a lower rate. In other times, we're going to kick the can down the road. But the whole idea is recognizing that the likelihood is that we're going to have to pay taxes. How can we do it in such a way that we can minimize? So what I would like to do first is talk about the federal budget. Really where I'm going with this is why do I feel, and I'm going to try to give some compelling evidence today, why do I feel that we're going to be in a position where your taxes are likely to be higher later? Well, for starters, let's talk about the federal budget. And I will point out about this federal budget. This is intentionally from January of 2020. And this is preceding the trillions of dollars that we put forth in the economic stimulus packages this year to fight off uh, COVID. So what you see here is that going into the COVID the budget for this year is we're spending $4.6 trillion a year, okay? Well, where do we get our money from? Well, we get our money from taxes. And how much revenue do we get from taxes? We get $3.6 trillion. Hmm, okay, let's think about that. Our costs are $4.6 trillion. We're earning $3.6 trillion. Where's that other $1 trillion come from? Well, the government has to borrow it. They're borrowing by issue bonds and oftentimes to other countries who buy our debt. So think about this and let's look at it as if this was your household. Let's say you're living on $46,000 a year, but your income is $36,000 a year. Ah, no big deal. Just put the other $10,000 on credit card debt. What could possibly go wrong? After all, you already have $240,000 of credit card debt. Do you think this is a problem, and do you think this needs to be fixed? Absolutely. So if you take a look at the, you know, how do you fix it? You either need to decrease expenses or increase income. How simple is that? Well, let's take a look at the expense side of the budget. So 51% of the budget goes to Social Security and Medicare. And I think we all know that can't be touched. Nobody really wants to touch that. No congressman wants to touch that. They refer to that as the third rail. And then the other aspects of it are uh, the defense budget, which really can't be moved all that much. And one thing is the interest on our debt. And think about that for a moment. If you have a whole bunch of credit card debt, as you accumulate debt, guess what? The amount of interest that you're having to pay goes up with it. And by the way, let's not forget that we are probably in the lowest income, ta I'm sorry, the lowest uh, interest rate that we have been in in decades or even possibly centuries. Interest rates right now are virtually zero. So fact is, is that if you increase the debt and increase 
the interest rate, guess what? The cost of managing that debt and servicing that debt is going to go up. So when we hear Congress talking about, hey, we're going to trim $10 million here or $50 million here or $100 million here, let's be practical. That's spitting in the ocean. A trillion dollars we're falling behind every year, and it's only getting worse as our, de as our deficit mounts and our, and our debt mounts. So now what? So if we can't fix the spending side, what do we got to do? We got to fix the income side. And I'm here to tell you that the only way that we get income or the government gets income is through taxes. Okay? And if we need to generate or if the government needs to generate more revenue and it needs to be taxes, guess what? We're eventually going to have to pay the piper to make up the difference. Okay, so what I'd like to do is now take a look at the income tax brackets over the course of the past 60 years. Now, what this does is this is a bar graph that illustrates for different incomes what the tax brackets were all during the last six decades. Now, I have to admit we generated this and it's unfair to look at the tax brackets from the 70s. Yes, in the 70s, the tax brackets were knocking on the door of 70%. However, let's all be practical. If you made $100,000 in the 70s, you were making a lot of money. You're making $100,000 today, while that's a pretty good income, it's not the same amount as from the 60s and the 70s because we had a ton of inflation from the, the late 70s into the early 80s. So I think what we should probably do is look a little closer to the mid to late 80s and to the 90s and 2000. And what you find here is if you follow some lines across like $50,000 of income or $100,000 of income, what you find here is prevalent tax brackets of about 28 and 31% all through until 2000. Okay, it didn't take much to hit the 28% tax bracket. Then comes President Bush. And what he did is he changed the tax laws in 2001 and expedited them so that they hit in 2003. And I've been teaching taxes for 17 years since 2003, and I've been preaching all that time that look at these tax brackets. The tax brackets are lower than we'd ever seen. And I figured, okay, guess what? There's only one direction they could possibly go up, and that is up. And guess what? In 2018, President Trump made a liar out of me and actually reduced the taxes. So here we are in the most, the lowest tax bracket system that we have ever been in, and we have debt to make up, and we have uh, deficits to make up, and if the only way to make it up, since we can't reduce our spending, is to increase the income, the income's going to be coming from us in the form of taxes. So what does that tell you? I'm here to say that, that for most people, you may actually find yourself in a lower income tax bracket today than you may be in the future. So this illustration here, basically, I created this to show how the federal government views assets. In their eyes, the federal government says there's four buckets with which you can have your money. And then the federal government also looks at it on three time horizons. They look at it going in, as you go, and then when you pull the money out. The only bucket with which you can get a tax deduction is in the first bucket on the left. That is your retirement plans. It could be a 401k, it could be an IRA, SEP IRA, 403b, 
pension plan. Now, a lot of times at the pension plan, you're not making the contribution, the company is, but you get that bottom dollar that the company is getting a tax deduction. So in this particular instance, as I described in the prior uh, episode, is that if you're making $100,000 and you contribute 10% or $10,000, what happens is that money goes in, it's tax deductible, and that you're reporting as if you earned $90,000, not $100,000. So that $10,000 goes into your 401k, and then what happens is it grows. So if it grows from 10,000 to 15 to 20, and you keep adding every year, now it's 50, 100, 200, 500, or a million, you're not paying taxes until you take it out, okay? And once you take it out, then you have to pay tax on it as ordinary income. And ordinary income is very important to understand because it's not taxed as capital gains. The next bucket is what I refer to as the non-qualified bucket. The non-qualified bucket basically means it does not qualify for any specific tax advantages. So what is that? Your savings accounts, your investment accounts, stock accounts, real estate, if you have rental properties, and things along that nature. So what happens is if you put $10,000 into your investment or savings account, you don't get any type of tax deduction. Similarly, if you take the money out, well, you're not having to pay tax on it except if it's a capital gain, but along the way, what happens is that you're having to pay taxes on the interest, the dividends, or the capital gains if you sell it, okay? So once again, remember that dividends, stock dividends, and long-term capital gains also get preferential tax treatment. The next bucket is the non-qualified annuities, it's uh, after-tax 401ks and non-deductible IRAs. As a general rule, I don't like these because they hogtie it. And what happens is that you accumulate uh, tax-deferred growth, which can actually come back and haunt you later. So in this particular instance, using the same $10,000, if I put $10,000 into a non-qualified annuity and it grows to 15, it great, it grows tax deferred, but what happens is that when you take the money out, you have to pay taxes on that $5,000. And in the case of an annuity, it comes out what they refer to as LIFO, last in, first out, which means if I want $2,000, it's the first $5,000 gets taxed as ordinary income. And then the last bucket, which is one of my favorite buckets, is the Roth IRA, Roth 401k, the 529 plans, which are designed for college, and then uh, cash value life insurance, which is outside the scope of today's conversation. So what happens here is if you contribute to your Roth IRA, and let's say you contribute $6,000, which is the current limit. If you contribute $6,000 and it grows to 10 and to 15 to 20 to 50, well, guess what? As it's growing, once again, it grows tax deferred, but it comes out. When you take it out, in my two favorite words, and that's tax-free. Now, of course, it comes with caveats. In order to get tax-free growth, the money needs to have originally been deposited and been in there for five years, and you must be age 59 and a half. And 59 and a half is an important caveat because in every single one of these buckets where you see the word deferred, deferred means the government's giving you an opportunity, a tax advantage. And that tax advantage says, hey, guess what? You gotta play by my rules. So the government's holding the carrot on the stick, but also holding a baseball bat behind his back. And if you don't play by his rule, bang, he whacks you over the head with a 10% penalty for taking that money out. So. Remember, the tax deferral can be good, 
But I'm here to say that tax deferral isn't good if you're deferring at a time where you're in a lower income tax bracket to a later time when you're in a higher income tax bracket. So it's important to know about this because this is a very, very common question that people ask us is, should I contribute to a traditional 401k or my Roth 401k? Should I contribute to a traditional IRA or do I contribute to my Roth IRA? The other thing that we're going to be discussing later is you also have the ability to take money from your IRA and move it to the Roth IRA. And that is called a Roth IRA conversion. And even if you're under the age of 59 and a half, you're not going to be subject to the 10% penalty. And let me tell you, if we're looking at people who may be in a higher income tax bracket later, here is an opportunity where they could take money out of their IRA or their 401k, and if they're going to be paying a lower income tax bracket or pay lower tax on it today, they can move it to the Roth IRA, pay the taxes at today's reduced rate, and then let it grow, and then pull it out tax-free in retirement. It also creates an incredible amount of flexibility when one is in retirement because it allows them to pick from which bucket do they draw their assets from? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to the example that we used last week. And here was the tax return that we used last week. The example that we used was a married couple. And one spouse was making $100,000. They were contributing 10% or $10,000 to their 401k. And then they were getting and paying $5,000 a year for medical insurance. So they got a W-2 that said they earned $85,000. The second spouse also earned $40,000, got a 10%, made a 10% contribution to their 401k, and they got a W-2 that said $36,000. Then they had $2,800 in, um, in interest, and then they had $6,000 in qualified dividends. Okay, now go back to the interest. The interest could have been interest from savings accounts or ordinary dividends that are distributed by bond investments. Then they had $6,000 in qualified dividends, which are those that are distributed by stocks, and then $5,000 in long-term capital gains. They had no other income. So they're not pulling from, from uh, the retirement account. They don't have a pension, no unemployment, and no other income. So they come up with their AGI of 134800 So we're going to be referring to this because there's a lot of things that this will do to uh, determine where you are today for your taxes and where you think you might be in retirement. So in this particular example, as we explained in the last episode, their taxable income is $110,000 as it shows on their tax return. However, if you truly watch how this is calculated, what you do is you back out the $11,000 of qualified dividends and long-term capital gains, and they actually have a taxable income of $99,000. So what happens now, you go over to the right-hand side of the page, and you see, if you follow up, which is very difficult to see, I realize that, but you'll see that they're actually in a 22% tax bracket. Then we throw the $11,000 on top, 
And what that does is that tells us how much we're paying in capital gains on those $11,000. And as I explained last time, is if they're in the red zone, they're paying 20%. If they're in the yellow zone, they're paying 15%. And if they're in the green zone, they're paying my favorite tax rate, which is zero. So one of the things that we have people looking at here is now that we look at and realize that they're in a 22% marginal tax bracket. Again, marginal tax bracket means is if this particular individual contributed $10,000 to their traditional 401k, effectively that worked its way all the way through the tax return such that their income went down by $10,000, so they saved 22%. Very important number because of the fact that what we want to do is know that we're in the 22% marginal tax bracket today. Let's project where do we think we are going to be later, okay? Now, it's very difficult to know where the future tax brackets are going to be. However, it's not that hard to realize that we are in the lowest income tax bracket system that we've ever been in, and we know that the federal government needs to make up its deficit, and the only way to do it is to be able to raise taxes. So if 28% and or 31% are the magic numbers where it seems like we were lying in those tax brackets for many years, then in this particular instance, 22% is a whole lot better than 28, isn't it? Here's another thing that I'm thinking about. Now, not only do I believe that the tax brackets will go up from here, and I think a lot of people also believe that, is a lot of people will say, ah, oh, but gee, Mike, you know, I'm not gonna be making that much money in retirement. That's the whole idea. I'm making a lot of money today, and I'm putting the money into my 401k, and I'm getting the tax deduction, but I put the money away, and when I'm in retirement, I'm not making money. Ah, but are you? So one of the things that happens is that with your IRAs and 401ks, once you reach um, age 72, you have what's called a required minimum distribution. The required minimum distribution says that you have to take a specified amount out every year and that's based upon your age. So in other words, um, at roughly age 72, which is now when it begins, it's about 4%. So if you have a million dollars in your 401k, which is not hard to get to, for people who have been contributing diligently all their lives, it's not hard to get to a million dollars. That person is going to be drawing $40,000 out of their 401k or their IRA. Well. The next thing, as we discussed earlier, or in the previous episode, and we'll talk about again today, is that income is now causing phantom taxation of Social Security. Here's what else is happening. The, um, is it possible that the federal government because of the fact that Social Security is currently underfunded. You know, people think it's going to go broke. I personally don't think it's going to go broke. However, at the rate that we are, it will go broke in year 2035. So one of the things that I think the government could do is they could means test Social Security. Well, what does that mean, Mike? Well, means testing means that they take a look at your other income. And if they see that you're drawing money from pensions and IRAs and, in, and dividends and capital gains, they could say, hey, Mike, you know what? 
You know, look at all this other income you're earning. Oh, you don't need $2,500 a month in Social Security. We'll give you $1,500. Like, wait a minute. So if you're giving me less, meaning the government's giving me less in Social Security, that means, in essence, if that's I'm getting less money, is the same thing as my giving the government money. And if it's based upon my income, then darn it, that's a, that's a tax. So people go, oh, they would never do that, would they? What if I told you they're already doing it? They're already doing it with Medicare because of the fact that the amount of money that you pay for Medicare, which is currently $144 a month, once you reach certain income thresholds, that amount goes up. So therefore, the government has already demonstrated that they're willing and capable of taxing you based upon your income. So the example that we used is a lot of individuals are in the 22% tax bracket. Here we are with a couple that between the two spouses, they make $140,000 a year and they have you know, about 10 or almost $15,000 in other income. Holy cow, they're making about 150, 155,000. Most people would think that they're gonna be in a lower tax bracket when they're in retirement. I'm here to say not necessarily. Because one of the reasons is the phantom taxation of Social Security. So we talked about this the last time, and I'm going to go through it again. So what happens here is I used a couple who are in retirement, and they're earning $40,000 from a variety of sources. In the example that I just said a few moments ago, they could have had a million dollars, and they're required to take the required minimum distribution of 4%, which is $40,000. Or it could be a pension, or it could be other forms of income, investment income, uh, rental property income, doesn't matter. It's generating $40,000 worth of income. And part of that is their IRAs and their retirement accounts that they're pulling from because the retirement accounts are where they have control today. So in this particular example, we talked about how the social security is taxed. You take all of your other income plus one half of your social security. So again, the example that I used is they got $40,000 in other income, we take one half of Social Security. In their case, they're earning $3,500 a month. One spouse, $2,000. The other one, $1,500. So that's $42,000 a year. Half of that is $21. So we take the $40 plus $21 is $61,000. To determine how much of that Social Security is taxable, remember, taxable, is, and the max is 85%. So what they do is they take the first $32,000 is at 0%. From 32 to 44% is at 50%. And anything over 44000 is at 85%. In this example, we have them at $61,000 of this provisional income. And how we calculate, as it shows on this, is that it's zero for the first $32,000. 50% of $12,000 is $6,000. And 85% of $17,000 is $14,450. So we add this all together. And the total amount of their social security that is taxable is 20,450. Yay, very simple. So we take that 20,450, throw it back onto page one of the tax return, add it into their $40,000 worth of income, and now they got $65,000 worth of income. So let's say for instance, now they have a $25,000 tax deduction, their taxable income is 40,000. As you may recall, their tax bracket will be between 17,000 and 80 is at 12% today, which is unsustainable. I believe that it goes to 15 and gosh, if it goes to even 28, 
I couldn't even imagine. But let's say 12 or 15 or even 25. So watch this next slide. So let's say for a moment the same couple decide I am going to add one extra thousand dollars of income. I'm going to take an extra thousand dollars out of my IRA. Well, very simple. All the numbers remain the same, except instead of their income being 40000 it's now 41000 So here what happens is that that extra $1,000 is now, if you look in the upper to the right, they're taking $1,000 of income. Now there's an extra $850 of phantom income from Social Security, and now that's $1,850 of taxable income that's showing up on their tax return. So even if they're in a 12% tax bracket, we take 1850 times 12% is $222. $222 on $1,000 is 22.2%. And that's in a 12% tax bracket. Just think if it flips back to the lowest tax brackets we've ever been in, and it's 15. At 15%, you take that 1850 times 15%, is $277.50. That's 27 and three quarters percent tax on that thousand dollars. And if they're in a 25% tax bracket, it actually ends up being $462.50, 46 and a quarter percent tax. So how much sense did that make? You're making a contribution to a retirement plan and get a 22% tax deduction to turn around and pay 46% on the back end, or even possibly 27 and three quarters percent, or best case scenario, 22.2%. Here's where, because of the, the newer laws that are now subsequently causing Social Security to become taxable, now all of a sudden you find yourself, once you're in retirement, you're running the risk of being in a higher income tax bracket. Now, I actually have a client who is widowed. She's collecting Social Security, and she has $30,000 worth of income. And in this particular instance, I actually talked to the accountant, the CPA, and I said, hey, do you realize that she's in a 49.95% tax bracket? And the accountant said, no way. I said, yeah, check it out. I told him to run and tell me how much the tax is on a particular dollar amount. And then I said, do me a favor, write that number down, and now I want you to add $1,000 worth more of income, and now tell me what the new tax is. And he runs it and says, holy cow, it was $499 on that $1,000. So here's an instance where she had an IRA that now all of a sudden for every $1,000, she's paying almost 50%. Now mind you, What's going to happen is that once she clears the hurdle and all of her Social Security becomes taxable, then she drops back down again. But guess what? She's already in a 25% tax bracket. So here's an example of where she's only taken down $30,000 worth of income, and she's in almost a 50% tax bracket. So the other games we could talk about playing, okay, and I call them games, is, you know, I've always said, he who knows the rules of the game the best usually does better at the game. Other things that we do and that you should consider doing is harvesting tax losses. So in a year where you have losses, capital losses, you could write them against your income. But interestingly enough, how many people have ever heard of 
harvesting capital gains. Well, tell you what. So let's say, for instance, somebody happens to be in the 12% income tax bracket. As I described before, if you're in a 12% income tax bracket, you take capital gains, you're paying 0% tax on it. So I've actually taken an individual who, for whatever reason, was in a lower income tax bracket this year, and I've taken capital gains intentionally. And in fact, I've taken the same investment in the same day, sold it, and rebought it because there's no such thing as a rule against selling at a gain and rebuying. However, the IRS has a rule called the wash sale. The wash sale says that you can't sell at a loss and you have to wait 30 days to buy it again. So the other area is the Roth IRA conversions. As I indicated, it's important to take a look at what your tax bracket is today and what your anticipated tax bracket will be later. Tax brackets later can be reasonably uh, estimated based upon what your income in Social Security is predictable, the amount of money that you're going to have in your 401ks and retirement plans are predictable, as are pensions. So here's an opportunity for you to really think about doing your tax planning. There's a lot of things that I personally believe, I feel very strongly again, that you got the six areas of financial planning. Tax planning is the most important piece of it because unlike all others, it is integrated in every facet of everything that you do during the course of your lifetime. And tax planning is not something you do on April 15th. Tax planning is something you do throughout your life because of the fact that during the course of your lifetime, there are things that you can reasonably predict such as when you may be taken and leaving for retirement, when you may be um, you know, collecting Social Security, and there are things you can't predict. Tax law changes, sudden income changes, whether it be a loss of a job, whether it be the loss of a loved one, or uh, getting laid off, or COVID. So many different things can happen that can change your tax circumstances. So it's very important to take a close look at what your tax situation is today and then also take a look over the future what you anticipate certain milestones in life that you can reasonably predict and try to maximize tax efficiency. So thank you very much for paying attention today. I hope you all learned something today about tax planning and I look forward to seeing you again. I have another episode coming up that is on estate planning, which is a subset, again, of uh, the six areas of financial planning. But when I talk about estate planning, I'm going to be talking about very general ideas. And oh, by the way, I'm sure you know, I'm going to be talking about tax planning as it pertains to estate planning. So I hope everybody has a great week, and I will see you next week. Please tune in to Financial Planning Explained with your host, Mike Menninger, certified financial planner, owner, and president of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Have a great week.